0: This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a vivid and voluptuous life. Two quick things before we get to today's interview, which is amazing. You're going to love it. First, I want to remind you that you can download the Stop Self Sabotage Report at plantyourself.com sabotage, all lowercase, S-A-B-O-T-A-G-E. I got some feedback that I'd like to share with you from someone who emailed me and said, I loved this. I loved how you began the report with your car story. There is just so much information to unpack and reread. I feel very fortunate that you are so freely sharing your wealth of knowledge and excellent teaching skills with us. I haven't gotten back to that person with permission to use their name, but I feel okay just grabbing those couple of sentences because that's exactly what I was hoping people would say when they downloaded and read the Sabotage Report. Again, you can get yours at plantyourself.com slash sabotage. And the second thing is I am so grateful to all the people who became patrons this past week. You'll hear their names at the end if you listen all the way through. And the one thing that concerns me is I spent about four minutes at the beginning of last week's podcast talking about money and talking about patronage and how you can support it. And I don't like that when other people do that on their podcast all the time. And I don't want to do it on my podcast all the time either. So I want to keep this real short, but tell you that the money really, really helps. It's helping me just looking at those numbers starting to increase to to attain a monthly figure that feels like I could sustain this thing over time without having to sacrifice my family's needs or sacrifice the lifestyle that I want. And um, if you just want to help out, just go to plantyourself.com and click the Patreon button on the right. And everyone who subscribes gets access to the three times a month healthy habit huddles that so far have only been for members of the tribe of well and for my coaching clients and my students. That's all I want to say about that because I said I don't want to turn this into a lengthy advertisement that turns people off. So let's get right to today's interview. My guest is Dr. Kim Williams, recent past president of the American College of Cardiology and a vegan and a recommender of vegan diets for his patients and for the world of humans. And when I invited Dr. Williams to be a guest on the podcast, that's kind of the limit of what I knew about him. Just a real big deal in not just the plant-based world, but in the world, in the medical world at large, and a guy who is promoting a plant-based diet. But once I started researching and once we started having our conversation That was just the tip of the iceberg of this remarkable, remarkable man. The things he's overcome, the motivation he's brought with him, and the breadth of spirit and knowledge and passion and persistence. It was just one of the most inspiring conversations I've ever had. So without further ado, Dr. Kim Williams, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Howard.
0: You are... Kind of a big deal in the in the in the plant based world and in the the wider world of of cardiology. Um, I would love for you just to start by like, telling us like how you got into medicine. What was it that that first piqued your interest and was able to sustain you through all the all the grueling years?
1: Uh, so well, it really was a compilation of um, of things that I was sort of doing a lot of reflecting. The older I get and. What made me go into medicine, I think the first foray was uh, being a five-year-old and having my stepdad die of an intracranial hemorrhage, and I actually learned what that term meant as a five-year-old, hypertension, what that meant, and um, so I was always interested in cardiovascular phenomena. Um, Then, so the biggest problem of him passing away um, was not having a stepdad, but the other part was uh, that we were relatively impoverished, and so um, uh, that sort of didn't stimulate me to go into any particular field, but it did mean that I didn't have the things I always needed. One of them was a winter coat one year. When I was 11, I ended up with a pneumonia in the hospital. That was a absolutely, um, you know, uh, that was a, a, a real moment for me because uh, I just got an, a up Close look at healthcare on the south side of Chicago, and you know, given it was 1965, but still, um, the way I, I knew that the medications were supposed to come at a certain time and they weren't, and you know, so I actually decided then that I was going to be a physician on the south side of Chicago and I was going to try to improve quality. Interestingly enough, um, the first episode was probably more important than the second. I didn't end up going into infectious disease or pediatrics. I ended up uh, in cardiovascular with a very special interest in hypertension. Uh, Proud to say that our American College of Cardiology guidelines uh, will be coming out hopefully in the next 10 weeks, not the next 10 months. It's in review right now. Um, And it'll have a lot to say about um, the management of hypertension. And hopefully we will um, have an impact on on how that, that is managed um, from medications to lifestyle. But uh, as it turns out, uh, that interest in hypertension sort of would drive me to either cardiology or nephrology. And I was intensely interested in both. But, you know, the, it's, you, you end up having to go with, you know, w- w- the kind of work that you feel like you could do no matter how tired you were, and that was cardiology. I just, huh. you know, just love the field. So that's, that's really how got there, and I um, was very happy for the majority of my career to be on the south side of Chicago. I'm now on the west side, um, but uh, I was at University of Chicago for almost 30 years and um, uh, left because of issues uh, in terms of patient advocacy. They were coming up with policies that were going to make it difficult to take care of the people from my neighborhood, so I had to find places where I could do that and and, uh, I, I did that for a while in Detroit, taking care of inner-city patients, a lot of hypertension, a lot of coronary artery disease, a lot of stroke, a lot of kidney failure. And um, you feel when you're doing that work <clears throat> that you're, you're not just serving the community, but you're serving the entire country. What a lot of people don't know uh, is that um, the ravages of systemic hypertension um, are the debilitation that happens with a stroke, most people would actually prefer death to a stroke and disability that impacts their family, their finances, their ability to work, everything. But then you've got the whole kidney failure thing, which is um, really almost pre-programmed in African-Americans by uh, a lot of times it's genetic, with the l one gene making you much more likely to develop kidney failure if you have the diabetes, hypertension, the risk factors. And it turns out that um, once you're on dialysis, you know, everyone used to say, mm, that's kind of a death sentence. You'll be dead in five years. Not true in African-Americans. They tolerate dialysis for long periods of time, 15, 20 years. And the interesting thing is that $86,571 per dialysis patient that's paid by Medicare because you automatically qualify for Medicare if you're on dialysis.
0: Wait, what's, that, what's the number again?
1: 80, $86,571 now, that was three years ago, the last time I looked. it's probably And that's, probably, is
0: that for, for like an average for all time or per year?
1: That is per year, per dialysis beneficiary, really. So just think of what good we could do if we managed hypertension better, if we eliminated or at least decreased the number of uh, particularly African-American patients who were going uh, into kidney failure, And going on dialysis. What a what a patriotic thing that would be. We'd have more money for inner-city education. We'd have more money for building roads and bridges. For goodness sakes. Um, So anyway, why focus on that Um, as a plant-based nutrition-minded cardiologist? Is because the majority (coughs) of hypertension could be eliminated if people would just um, pay attention to diets that have been shown to reduce or eliminate hypertension, and that's pretty much plant-based diet. The DASH data, the DASH diet, excuse me, DASH stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension, has good data, you know, it's not completely plant-based, but they do have randomized trials and those randomized trials show substantial improvement, decrease in the number of medications, better blood pressure control. But there's a lot of data out there that that indicates that if a person does completely plant-based nutrition, particularly with a lot of grains uh, and a lot of vegetable protein, that they could dramatically uh, improve their blood pressure, and people fall into about one of three groups. And in my practice, it's about one-third, one-third, one-third. Mild improvement, moderate improvement, and complete elimination of the disease, no more medications um, for high blood pressure. Now, those people are usually the ones who do the diet, do the exercise on a regular basis, and lose the weight, particular central central weight. If you do those three things, gosh, we're talking about a disease that doesn't have to exist. Mm.
0: So I, I, there's so much that you just said in there that I'd like to un- unpack, but I want to okay. kind of go back go back to the very beginning because it's it's really interesting that you... You experienced so you know the the loss of a stepfather to a a serious medical condition, subsequent impoverishment, um, dealing with a a medical system that wasn't serving your family, and your response was like really sort of practical and like unemotional, almost like like there are so many other ways that you could have responded to that set of situations from you know, like becoming a radical, becoming a community organizer like Barack Obama in in Chicago. Like what, what did you, what were you thinking when you said, well, you know, there's all these problems and I'm going to, I'm going to enter the system and just practically contribute, roll up my sleeves and and contribute as opposed to like, I could imagine myself in those circumstances, just wanting to tear things down.
1: That's that's interesting. Um, I think you're you're right. Uh, I have to admit that uh, I wasn't much of a student back in grammar school. It was that episode that made me a little more focused on academics, and uh, uh, you know, took another year or so. But once I grew up a little bit and realized that there was a relationship between um, my ability to help people, um, and uh, it wasn't just me. I have to admit, it wasn't just me in that hospital. Those were wars with you know. I think that mine was relatively semi-private. I think there were four kids uh, in the room. And I just felt bad for every one of those kids. I was probably the oldest and the least sick. And, you know, it's kind of like you really want to do something. And so I I think most people, given a situation where they're seeing people who are suffering, they would want to reach out and help. And um, to the extent that medicine is science and the language of science is math, and I had any talent in science and math, then it's kind of like my responsibility to, to go in there and, and do something. But I hear what you're saying. Not everybody would be motivated that well. It, it probably depends on what their own skills are. If they were uh, a person of words, they would probably want to write a newspaper article about it. I mean, and so um, I, I, I know what you mean, but I, I, I think for me, math and science were the, 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 the ways of which I could communicate with the world.
0: Wow. And... Were you, were you like clear at that point, like age 11, like, okay, I wanna go into medicine?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it really, uh, that was the one that, that one experience that solidified it. You know, like I said, it might've taken another year and a half or so before I actually um, got the pieces because, you know, that's one of the problems that we face right now and digressing, but only a little bit, um, that we still have a crisis in terms of workforce um, we don't have enough women in cardiology yet. We don't have enough ma- underrepresented minorities. And part of the issue with underrepresented minorities, particularly African American men, is that they don't have a mentor who could say, you know, I, you know if I could have just, you know, had a, a mentor who I could say, okay, I decided I want to go into medicine, what should I do? Then it probably wouldn't have taken me a year and a half to figure out that. I probably need to get good grades so I can get into college. Get into college, go to medical school. That that you know took a little while. Um, so I, I did would, you
0: did you know did you meet and know doctors who kind of looked like you and for from your neighborhood?
1: And that's really my point. Not I did not. There were some. I just didn't see them. Um, they didn't live in my neighborhood because I was in a you know. Well, I should say my neighborhoods. We were poor enough that I we moved every year. So that, I, we used to laugh at the fact that I, had, that I went to eight different grammar schools. Um, now, if you add that to the fact that I taught tennis for the Chicago Park District, I know every neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. And so it's actually an advantage now. But, um, you know, it, it didn't seem so much back then.
0: Mm. Did you get encouragement from you know teachers, from from your mom, from other family members, or community people? Like, yeah, this is this is a path that that we think you can succeed on. Because if there you know if there weren't other trailblazers, no,
1: no, I think you know most of the family thought that I would follow my grandfather into the ministry, be a Southern Baptist preacher. Um, but um, and in my high school, there were a couple of teachers who were encouraging. My own particular um, uh, advisor said, you know, I don't know how you can do this, it's very difficult from inner city schools, and he didn't say it in, in, in exactly those words, but he was saying that don't apply to the University of Chicago, you'll never get in. I just ignored him and applied anyway and did get in. And um, so, you know, that's, that you're pointing out um, a, a real deficit in some places that the, uh, the guidance counselors uh, and the lack of uh, of real role, good role models. So we're actually approaching that. We're we're talking uh, about having more of the underrepresented minority physicians uh, do as much giving back to the community and going and letting people know that yeah, they too can can do this. Um, it's interesting uh, that having role models really does work. And this is my own personal theory, but. Um, I was talking about women in cardiology being underrepresented. Almost half of our internal medicine residents are women, but only about 20% of our cardiology fellows are women. And part of it is lifestyle, part of it's role modeling. You'd, but they can't say, oh, cardiologists are just too busy, and so, you know, women want to have, young women want to have a family. They can't do that and be a cardiologist. First of all, it's not true. You certainly can. But when you look at general surgery, which is really. Very demanding. The call schedule is very demanding. That's a 50-50 now, and it's a big change. And my own personal theory is that it's Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> that huh. uh, this whole this is like uh, I, I lose track, but is this season twelve or season thirteen or something like that? And these young women who are applying to general surgery have grown up having role models on television of uh, African-American, Hispanic, uh, and, uh, and Caucasian women who are all living their lives as surgeons and having a great time. Um, and so it's, uh, uh, I think if we, we need more of that, and we need more uh, buy-in. Uh, I, I have to say that American College of Cardiology is working on this. We have a task force specifically to try to improve um, these disparities and who, who does cardiology, and also the American Medical Association has a specific program called Doctors uh, Back to School, where doctors will go to the communities, go into the schools, and talk with physici- uh, to physician-minded kids and those who are not. Um, what I'd like to see happen is a, a lot more um, I'd say infiltration would be a good word of our um, uh, historically historically black colleges and universities. It was pointed out to me by one of the students at one of them at Hampton Institute that you know nobody comes by and talks about this kind of thing, um, but there are people who have already gotten to the college and probably do have some capabilities in math and science uh, let 's just give them some direction so uh, we're we're just going to keep after it because we know that uh, if we can get more African American and Hispanic, particularly um, physicians, that'll improve our healthcare system.
0: That's so interesting about Gray's Anatomy having that effect because one of my favorite books is called The Talent Code. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you know it, but it's, it's sort of like looking at hotbeds of talent, and he he like talks about like one Dominican baseball player made it to the major leagues and became a star. And then 10 years after that, like there was an explosion of Dominican talent and, <laughs> and, this, and a similar thing I think with Anna Kornikova in this, in Russia and then yeah. 10 years after she won a title um, like this Russian girls Academy, like dominated tennis At, for a while.
1: Absolutely. And you know, the other great that you mentioned tennis, the other great one is actually Czech, the Czech Republic. It started off with Martina. she defected, she's American now. Uh, but then it was Helena Sukova and, and all of a sudden, young girls who were in Czech, the Czech Republic, as it changed from the, they were all born, uh, this generation was born in the Czechoslovakia but it became the Czech Republic. They all saw that this is a way they could just literally work their behind off, just work so hard that they can get out of poverty and, and have something for their for their families. And so, you know, if you're playing Fed Cup, you know, uh, Federation Cup, you know, and it's United States against Czechoslovakia or, or Czech Republic, you know, you they could come in with their C team and they have so many uh, wonderful players. So you're absolutely right. You get just a couple of people who say that this can be done. This is a pathway to success uh, and it can infect an entire group.
0: Mm. So, So at the same time as you're pursuing – a career that was not traditionally available to African-Americans, especially from an inner city, you were also pursuing a sport that, like I think Arthur Ashe was like on the on the Davis Cup team for the first time in 63 when you were, when you would have been like eight years old. Right. Like you, you chose t- tennis. I find that really interesting as well. Like you're like a double trailblazer.
1: Well, it, that, that really was a lot of interesting happenstance that formed, Formed my career in several ways. Uh, um, you know, it's fun to talk about stuff that happened a long time ago. But uh, if it gives hope to anybody that uh, uh, to hear a, a funny, crazy story, um, so I was actually a chess player, and uh, I was one of the best chess players in the state. And Calumet High School on the south side of Chicago, which was had not been known for quality chess. That you know, it was usually something reserved for the bigger schools. Um, usually, you know, Caucasian schools, uh, not the inner city schools. And it turns out that um, we worked our way up to pretty much the top of the ladder in the Chicago public school system and qualified for state. And we were doing really well. And one day, my whole chess team uh, said that uh, Calumet High School is starting a, t- a tennis team and they were all going to go out. So I just went out to be with the guys. I, you know, when the chess season was over. That's, it had nothing to do with really wanting to be a <laughs> Uh, but, again, like that cardiology thing, uh, I, the, the coach gave me a couple of things. Here's how you hit a backhand. Here's how you hit a forehand. I, went, I worked on it on my own, came back, and next thing you know, I was playing number three singles, having never even played the sport before. Okay, so then it got interesting. Um, the University of Chicago actually um, has had a long-running program called, believe it or not, The Program, where they seek out African-American students uh, kids and try to help them both academically and athletically. They draw them in with the athletics and they put on a, a uh, sports program and you do sports in the morning and then the afternoon you work on whatever academic issues you've had math, science, Uh, absolutely the broad range, and this is totally supported a little bit by NCAA, a little bit by um, a few charities, but most of the bill is borne by the University of Chicago and certainly their facilities. So if you ever go on campus in the summer, you see the kids in the maroon T-shirts, those who look African American in their city, that is the program. Well, it turns out um, that uh, one of the kids that we played from another inner city school Uh, told us as a team about the program, and I actually didn't have a plan other than playing chess that summer, and so I actually went over there to see if I could learn some some tennis, and there I was on the court with 60 other inner-city kids, and the guy who was giving this, you know, fantastically large group lesson, turns out he was A, a minority recruiter for the admissions department for University of Chicago and he was the varsity tennis coach unbelievable Um, he only taught it that one year um, and uh, I talked to him after the first day about my wanting to go to the University of Chicago but I'd been told I wouldn't get in and all this stuff and uh, he actually unbeknownst to me set up an interview I just thought he just told me to go to this building and talk to this guy I didn't realize that that was my college interview there I was in my tennis clothes Um, And it turns out that uh, uh, I actually did get in the University of Chicago, and he did become my tennis coach. He actually, um, when I, he was still such a great player at an older age, we actually played pro events together uh, as doubles partners after I uh, grew up in the sport. Um, But I think that the next part of it that makes it sort of improbable is that I really was kind of poor and didn't have a lot of resources. Um, and didn't have a lot of help. And getting good at tennis meant that I could teach lessons. And once I was teaching lessons, I actually could have, I could pay my tuition. And I, you know, everybody's talking about how they came out of school without, with a lot of uh, debt. I was almost debt free, and that's mostly because of tennis. So, um, so I owe tennis my medical career and uh, pretty much. And so it's, uh, it's, an, it's been an end a lot to the University of Chicago in that program.
0: So do you have, like, ninja time management skills to be to – be... <laughs> like, my friends who are doctors, I remember when they were going through med school, and, like, they barely had time to brush their teeth.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting um, that you should say that because I still um, – this is, this is not a live interview, so I can't strip for you. I always wear tennis clothes under my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> A, tennis might break out, but more importantly, I'm just used to doing it. I I used to go from the wards, if there was a break for an hour and a half, uh, schedule a tennis lesson, go to usually Lake Meadows Tennis Club in Chicago, teach the lesson, speed on back, uh, finish work doing studying, and uh, I kept interdigitating uh, tennis and medicine like that for uh, really for a very long time. And uh, so they did, unfortunately, become sort of uh, at crossroads um, or at loggerheads in the summer of 1976 when I was in a qualifier for the U.S. Open. And I just I was beating the number one seed, and I knew that if I won that tournament I was going to go to the U.S. Open and I was going to have to miss part of uh, medical school, which meant if you, miss, you know, if you miss a week, you're done for the quarter. If you miss the quarter, you're done for the year. Um, so um, the really good thing is that up a set and a break in the second set, I hurt my back. I finished the match, but I really couldn't play. And the guy was a pretty brainy guy. He, he figured out that I couldn't move to my left, <laughs> and he <laughs> hit one to my right, and then move it to the left. And next thing you know, the uh, match was over, and I was on my way back to Chicago, and went back to medical school, and never looked back. And you know, I often look, think about that. You know, I never had another back injury, and I said, you know, would I have really given up one year of Im- interacting with patients, teaching students? Um, influencing medical care, you know, so that I could have played professional tennis. And I think the answer is no, pretty, pretty resoundingly. So I'm pretty glad that I had that uh, that little tweak. That uh, took me six weeks to get over, and you know, I was back playing and no problem. And uh, but any thought of not going back to medical school um, and delaying it for tennis, which is what my coach was telling me I had to do, you got to do it, you got to try. Uh, mm. All that, all that went away.
0: Yeah, it's like your uh, so some some inner wisdom said let's let's tweak the back because we know this is this is the good this is the the preferred path. I think so. Wow, fascinating. So, so you uh, you went to medical school. You decided on cardiology, and I guess I'm guessing for 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 a certain number of years you were what we'll call a traditional cardiologist.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, traditional in the way of I, my specialty.
0: Like not, 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 cr- not a crazy plant-based guy, I mean.
1: Exactly. I, I was uh, uh, interested in diet for a long time. I, my mom had, um, in, even though we were fairly poor, she thought that the way to get out of being poor was to go to school. So when I was in college, she was in grad school. Um, so it must have been sometime when I was, um, probably eighth grade or ninth grade, she was in a junior college, and someone told her about the Ansel Keys stuff, that cholesterol caused heart disease. And so she had actually, and that uh, red meat caused colon cancer. That was the late late 60s. I mean, this data has been out there for a long time. Um, all of that was uh, turned out to be true. And so she had tried to make us vegetarians, and uh, I went along with it. Uh, Uh, until I was actually, I was vegetarian until I was married in 81 and marital negotiation changed it to uh, Pesco vegetarian with some chicken. Not knowing, because most physicians do not get any um, uh, counseling on nutrition, not knowing that that was a low fat diet, it was not a low cholesterol diet. And, therefore, it was not healthy for someone who had the, g- the genes to develop high cholesterol, which I found out that I had. Now, whatever that, uh, as it turns out, uh, as, as time went on, I got older. I had an LDL cholesterol, the dangerous stuff, the bad cholesterol. That had gotten up to 170 back in the time where 110 would have been considered good and, uh, and above 160 meant you need to be on a statin drug. Um, before starting started, once I found that out, before starting the drug, I, I just started fasting and um, that day and repeated it. It was still the same. But then uh, I happened to see a publication by David Jenkins on vegan diet. Um, and this was uh, happening at a time when I had, I had been primed to int- be interested in diet because a patient in my lab had had a marked improvement in her scan on uh, the Ornish diet. So I was thinking of this. Diet stuff, anyway, and I saw the the uh, uh, Journal American Medical Medical Association published David Jenkins' study on, you know, plant sterols, uh, almonds, uh, soluble fiber, and um, and vegetable protein as a way to uh, lower cholesterol, and it did it very successfully. It did it equal to a statin? So, instead of grabbing a pill, I grabbed the diet, and uh, six weeks later, my cholesterol was really normal and it almost fallen in half. Um, and so I've been with it ever since and started again following the data, you know feeling like I really should have known that. I really should have been counseling my patients the whole time. You know it's not just about colon cancer, it's not just about um, you know obesity. This is your cholesterol is going to plug up your arteries. It's been the leading cause of death in, in the United States since 1918, continues to be. It's actually growing again after 44 decades of decline. It's now growing again in terms of cause of mortality. And so we you need say,
0: to, <clears throat> When you say that you're talking about uh, cardiovascular disease? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I, I'm not sure everybody heard that, but the CDC, if they Google it, they'll see it. Um, the CDC came out with the latest numbers uh, for 2014. It's emblazoned in my brain. I'm sorry. It was... Um, uh, 214.1 patients per 100,000 dying of cardiovascular disease. Still, at the, still is number one. And in 2015, that went up to 218.5. And that, what was so remarkable about it is that's the first time in 40 years that there had been an increase in cardiovascular death in the United States. And had, that
0: number is what per, is age-adjusted per hundred thousand?
1: Yeah, indeed. And you know, and so why is it? Why is it? They CDC is blaming it on diabetes and obesity. If that really is true, that's diet. Uh, you know, the the diabetes epidemic and the obesity epidemic. Yeah, it has a lot to do with the sedentary lifestyles that we have, but it's it's calorie overload. Um, the, the very principles that you hear hanging around all the plant-based uh, uh, physicians, the fat you eat is the fat you wear. Uh, the one I added to it after a few key publications in 2016, the sugar you eat is the fat you wear. <laughs> so um, we've got to do something about it. We have to continue uh, preaching about it until people realize that they can control their own destiny, um, how, how long they live and the enjoyment of their life. Uh, Is really dependent on their lifestyle and
0: their habits. Mm-hmm. So, so I read the uh, the the piece you published in, in MedPage Today on Cardio Buzz, which I guess was you published just before you became the, the president of the American College of Cardiology. And the thing that really hit me was you talked to this patient about her improvement on the Ornish plan, yes. and you t- and you took it seriously. And I have so many stories of, of clients of mine and just, you know, casual conversation about someone who adopted a plant-based diet, got better, reversed everything, and their doctor basically said, oh, wow, that's great. And, and the patient sort of was waiting for the doctor to say, what did you do? What can I learn from this? The doctor never said it. So the patients would then say, so do you want to know how I did it? And the doctor would say, "Nah, not really. Like, what, was it just that you yourself were worried about your, what what do you think made you different, take a different path and really take an interest and say, wow, there's something here that I have to learn from?
1: Well, part of it is that my interest in nuclear cardiology um, and every detail of that, um, you know, there was a great conversation with the lady because we were really good data collectors. I have a reporting system that's unique and it has every detail that you could ever want. And um, you know, to see a scan dramatically improve like that, which I'd seen before after multi-vessel angioplasty or four-vessel bypass surgery, I'd seen improvements, but uh, there, there was no such claim that any procedure had been done to this patient. So I had a caller, find out what happened, and, uh, you know, it really was diet and exercise. So, yeah, that, that was going to stick in my brain because those pictures are, this, uh, you know, they're still in my brain right now. It's, it's hard to uh, imagine someone dramatically improving uh, so much. And so, so yes, I think uh, the fact that I was a nuclear cardiologist and could actually see what was happening to blood flow in the heart um, was actually very helpful and critical. And, in fact, Dean Ornish had published this. This was not unique. Uh, he actually published it, not with the rudimentary um, uh, usual kind of cameras that we use in nuclear, but the fancy ones, the PET scanners, the ones that are really expensive, and uh, he, he published they're very accurate. There's no question about the changes that you can actually quantify, really carefully measure the percent change in blood flow. He actually has shown it. that You know, he can show it in, in as little as three months, dramatic improvement. Um, before you have much chance for the arteries to open up. So why does it work? Probably because those small, you know, the lining of the arteries, the so-called endothelial cells, they are a live, active organism that uh, Dr. Esselstyn always talks about. You're just trashing them with oils. Um, you go on an Ornish diet or an Esselstyn diet, and you're going to improve the function of those little uh, linings of your blood vessels, and they're going to carry more flow. And so it really uh, it was all circulating in my head uh, when I found out that I had a high cholesterol. And yeah, changing the diet could fix that as well.
0: Gotcha. So just for, for people who don't know what a nuclear cardiologist is, uh, possibly including myself, can you explain?
1: Sure. So yeah, two, two words that don't go together, nuclear and medicine, right? So uh, nuclear medicine really came about after World War II, after the bomb um, if you have uh, decay of uranium or polonium, you know, in any kind of nuclear reactor, you get a lot of junk. <laughs> and one of those pieces of junk um, was a, te- a compound called technetium. Uh, another one that you can make is called phallium. Things that have relatively low amount of uh, radio- radiation burden, if you inject them into a patient. Um, and they have specific properties. So thallium was the one, the first, the first one that became very famous because thallium scanning could detect whether or not there was a problem with blood flow. You inject it in a vein. The coronary arteries will bring it to your heart or not, <laughs> based on how good the blood flow is. And uh, the heart takes it up. Heart thinks that it's potassium, so it's supposed to be in high concentration in every cell. That that I just described with thallium in the heart is reproduced for a variety of nuclear tracers and nuclear compounds uh, all over the body. So there's thyroid scans. Brain scans sort of went away when CAT scans came out. Bone scans are still done very heavily. Um, and you there's scans for infection and, and scans for cancer. And, uh, and so nuclear medicine actually is mostly about diagnosis. There is a small portion of it still where you do nuclear medicine treatment. Um, to try and you know, improve someone's like bone pain, uh, for example, um, or uh, uh, look at their try to improve their thyroid when it's overactive by giving them radioactive iodine. But but most of what you do in nuclear medicine is diagnosis, and nuclear cardiology got to be the very largest part of nuclear medicine. It still is probably over fifty percent of them are heart studies, um, just because it became. Uh, uh, a really good way of telling what a patient's risk is. Almost everybody in the United States who eats animals has some degree of coronary artery disease. And having a couple of tiny plaques with perfectly normal flow, you've got a good outcome. If your flow is limited a little, not so good outcome. And you can actually do sort of a stair step or or, um, uh, increasing risk with increasing abnormality uh, when you look at a, a scan of the heart done with stress and compared to a resting one, so that's that's basically it in a nutshell. We um, we try to tell you know you, you tell people who who is it that needs an angiogram, who is it that needs bypass surgery. You can tell that by doing a nuclear stress test.
0: Gotcha. And you're looking at the, the at the heart itself as opposed to. Um... Like you know, Dr. Esselstyn's pictures of the the coronary arteries is that a, is that a different type of diagnosis that uh, that he wrote about in Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease?
1: Yep, very different. And Dean Ornish wrote about both angiograms and nuclear, so called PET scans. So yeah, so the one that we're doing is non-invasive. The one that uh, Dr. Esselstyn's talking about, you actually have to go in through the artery into the artery uh, from an artery that's attached to it, run a tube up there, shoot, die, and that sort of thing. We actually can do a pretty good job of simulating that nowadays with a CAT scanner. Um, and uh, if, you, if you do the the images appropriately, you can get very nice angiograms of the heart uh, non-invasively. But the, the, the to make it sort of simple. The angiogram is a roadmap. It's an anatomic roadmap, you know, 40% narrowing here, 80% narrowing there. But the nuclear tells you what the flow is like. How good is that 40% functioning? Because sometimes there's a a 40% that is blocking the flow, and sometimes there's an 80% narrowing with normal flow. And you Mm -hmm. need to treat the ones that have the abnormalities, not the ones that just look like they're bad.
0: Gotcha. So, there's a, there's a meme that I see on my Facebook feed at least twice a week. It's got your picture and a quote, right? That says there are two kinds of cardiologists: vegan or, or vegans, and those who haven't read the data. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you published your your uh, your piece, uh, you got a lot of pushback from people who have read some data. And it seems like over the last five years. There's really been a pushback against the idea that cholesterol has anything to do with heart disease, with health, that, you know, that bacon diets and high-fat diets are, are the way to go, or high-protein, low-carb diets are, are the, the best thing. And all and I know lots of people who are on them and who appear to be losing weight. What's your assessment of where the evidence is in terms of, like, what, what can we say for sure what what do you what do you what have you seen in the last few years that is the most convincing? Because it's so it's so confusing for lots of people. So
1: let me let me deal with that second hour. The first thing I want to do, I I, I kind of wish people would stop sending that around. Uh, I said it, uh, and I I actually said the words. I like to joke that, and huh. they took that off. Okay. Oh. Oops. And and but. Having, but, you know, if you say something out loud, sometimes you have to own it. <laughs> and so uh, what's happened over the, over the years is that I've had a number of cardiologists initially, you know, look at that and say, you know, oh, how could he say something so, uh, you know, trash all of his colleagues? Um, but I've also had people who are in cardiology read the data and become vegan. And so I'm kind of glad I said it, and I, I, I do want to, to uh, uh, explain to you what I meant by that, but I have to admit that uh, I really don't want to stop what I'm doing until the leading cause of death in cardiologists is no longer heart disease.
0: Huh. So you said that very specifically. It almost slipped by me that cardiologists themselves die of heart disease Cardiovascular disease more than any other cause.
1: Absolutely, they're Americans on an American diet, most of them, and so I want to save the lives. I'm tired of my colleagues dying. One happened this about six weeks ago in Indianapolis. I won't say his name without talking about his, fa- you know, with his family for permission. But uh, you know, we get a report that he drove off the highway, off the road, uh, across the stri- the strip, and and in, landed into a house, and turns out he had sudden cardiac death. And, you know, when are we going to stop? You know, we manage the disease so well and everyone else, but and then we succumb to it. And so, so anyway, uh, back to the quote, what I was really talking about and uh, when, when I was joking about that, I was talking about the fact that we keep uh, publishing, we at uh, Switching Hats Now to the Vegan Community, keep publishing studies in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Why not in the Journal of American College of Cardiology? Why not American Journal of Cardiology, where you have a vegan editor? Why not Why not make sure that all of the data is getting in front of the cardiologist? So that the, so the dig was against the researchers, not against the cardiologists, mm-hmm. <laughs> interestingly enough. Uh, I, now, the fact of the matter is, since I said that, we have had some inroads. Uh, I, I did become president of ACC. We do have uh, some ability to affect how the college gets things done. We were able to set up a nutrition subcommittee of the Prevention um, Council, and that nutrition subcommittee has uh, Andy Freeman, who's an amazing vegan cardiologist, uh, and a v- wide variety of folks Dean Ornish, Caldwell Esselstyn, uh, wonderful, wonderful people uh, who all have different points of view. We have Mediterranean people. We have, um, uh, I mean, Mediterranean diet people. We have a paleo person. We have, you know, a a variety of folks uh, with a variety of points of views. But ultimately, we can get together and write a review article that goes into JACC, where the cardiologists will come out of that if they if they read it, they're going to come out of it with more information about nutrition probably than they got in their entire career. Uh, because it's so minimal for most of us. And so the the pitch really is about education and research and doing it within cardiology where it's going to have the most impact. So anyway. But if,
0: but yeah, so so go ahead. So you, you you had more to say on the whole.
1: Question. Oh no, I just I just wanted to go back to your um, uh, uh, to your second point is you know, where are we? How much have we done? What what you know, what do, how do we deal with the Time magazine saying that butter is in and and all of these issues. Well, the issue really is that we have to be very careful of separating science from pseudoscience. And I'm saying a very strong word again. Um, and the pseudoscience is uh, you know a, a problem when there are conflicts of interest and uh, particularly relationships with industry that. Influence the outcome. Uh, I, I don't. Where do I even start? I, I just give you two quick stories. Um, number one was we woke up to uh, back in I think February of 2015 to the recommendations from the Dietary uh, Advisory Group that were supposed to make the recommendations for a report that then becomes the Dietary Guidelines for the United States for the next five years, and it said some and fantastic things I mean I learned so much oh did you know coffee isn't bad for you huge study four cups of coffee lowers diabetes and stroke okay I'll try to do coffee I hate the stuff I'll try it anyway Uh, (laughs) whatever you know if there's really a good scientific basis behind it Um, they said that people should eliminate or or minimize red meat they said that um, sugar was a problem said that Americans eat too much protein. This was going on and on in such a positive way. And then there was a little bit of a problem. They said, oh, and by the way, the previous five-year guidelines said that we should limit cholesterol to 300 milligrams per day. Uh, We are now removing the 300 milligram limit because the American College of Cardiology says that uh, cholesterol is no longer uh, an, a nutrient of concern for consumption, and I'm saying, wait a minute. I read our guidelines. I approved our guidelines. One of the because you know the vice president is on the board of trustees. I don't remember this statement at all. So they referenced us incorrectly, and they 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 referenced a an analysis, a compilation of studies that looked at eggs and said that eggs were perfectly safe if you compared all of the data of zero to one per week versus seven or more per week, that those two groups have the same cardiovascular outcome. Well I had to see I had to see that. So I pulled that article and believe it or not, that's not what it said either. It actually said that, yeah, no difference in cardiovascular outcome. But if you over the short term, but you increase your rate of diabetes by forty two percent Short term, and if you uh, and short by by the way, in five to sixteen years, most of the physicians would hope that their patients would live more than five to sixteen years. And if you were diabetic, it increased your cardiovascular mortality rate by sixty nine percent. That is not a negative study. You don't use that as a basis for saying don't uh, don't worry about how much cholesterol or how many eggs you're eating. So we, we galvanized our uh, nutrition committee to start writing editorials about it. Uh, we published a couple from Rush University. Uh, we you know, really went on all, all fronts, all available mechanisms to try to influence this. We had already developed, uh, because of our population health um, foray at the American College of Cardiology, we had relationships with the house, White House and USDA, Health and Human Services, we, we rang all their phone numbers, we, we got meetings together. Um, it took a little research to find out that there were members of that writing group who were uh, paid by the egg board. And that's, a, that's an unfortunate kind of reality. And that reality came, came through very loud and clear. There was a lot of lobbying about that document. A lot of those wonderful things that, uh, that were in the initial document about, you know, not eating red meat and that sort of stuff, got changed. Um, they, watered, uh, they ended up watering down a bit um, the recommendations about foods, and they kind of stuck to the nutrients. Well, I, the people don't eat nutrients. They eat foods. <laughs> and so uh, it became more of a problematic document. However, the doc, we did win. Uh, after showing them the Institute of Medicine report from 2001, uh, and they actually quoted it saying, People should eat as little cholesterol as possible. So they are removing the 300 milligram limit, but for a completely opposite reason than they were saying before. It's because you shouldn't eat any. And if anybody knows their nutrition at all, they know that there are only three animal pro- products that don't have cholesterol. That would be like egg whites, jello, and uh, honey. And so that essentially means it's people are going to be a vegetarian or, and preferably vegan uh, in order to avoid eating cholesterol. Um, so, so anyway, we kind of won, but we didn't necessarily win because um, the first one about eliminating any concern about eating cholesterol hit the news, and um, there was no big retraction, um, even though we got that changed completely. Um, the, the, the other example that I, that I would mention, because I think it's so important, uh, was sort of the be- beginning of all of this. So we got to see what the red meat folks could do and what the egg board could do to influence a document and influence public policy. But we, little did we know that this started really, really about five decades ago. And so this got published in the Journal of American Medical Association last summer. It was an, an unfortunate uh, discovery um, at an Ivy League university that the Department of Nutrition chair had systematically gone on a campaign to remove sugar uh, at the behest of the end payments that were recorded uh, from the newly found Sugar Research Foundation to point the cardiovascular disease cause away from sugar and towards saturated fat. And so we all grew up, even as vegans, thinking uh, avoid saturated fats. If you're going to get it from animals, you shouldn't do that. But sugar's okay. It's a plant. Well, it turns out if you look at it very carefully, um, and I, you know, I actually had seen before this came out. I had seen a couple of publications, um, one in Journal American Medical Association, and one actually in American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, talking about outcomes and sugar intake and the outcomes being bad. But no one knew that there had been five decades of suppression of this kind of information and sort of twisting where the research would go and what would get published and, and the like. Um, so, so we do have a problem with what you're asking. Um, where is the data? Where are we? We are in basically sort of, dare I say, a food fight. You know, I mean, this really is a, a it's a major issue. Um, because what we're asking people to do goes against a lot of strong industries. And uh, if you were to, everyone says things like, uh, if you were to eliminate all animal products that our greenhouse gas problems would go away, that we could solve world hunger by feeding U.S. grain to all the needy countries. Well, it also would eliminate a lot of jobs. And it also would uh, upset a lot of people whose lifestyle has been that way. So I don't know that I have a, a, one of those global answers. It would be great if everyone in the planet would eat like me, and uh, we could take all of our cardiologists and turn them into you know, infectious disease people or something like that, um, because that's what would happen if everybody was a vegan. We would have very little need uh, in this country for cardiology. Um, but So I, I can't answer the, the global questions, but we could try to address them, and we can certainly address them as individuals. And wouldn't it be nice if we could do it before they develop uh, the heart attack and the stroke instead of getting them motivated after the fact?
0: Right. And, and I, I remember so re- reading about some of that sugar stuff, and it yeah. felt like I was going to have to be disloyal to my team, to kind of acknowledge this and write about it? You know, I think this 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 was like Mark Hegstead, right? Um, so,
1: no, if you do a, uh, I, I, I don't recall the lady's name. I could Google it really quick. Um, but it, it's in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Um, I think it came out in October or so. It should be pretty easy to find because I keep all, the, all that stuff. Uh, Pretty close to. I have it on slides, but it's easier to to find it. uh, I think.
0: Right. Well, I'm looking here at a at a Jama Network sugar industry. Sugar. Uh, Yep. Yeah. Sugar.
1: So this is September. I I did it. uh, uh, I've got it September 12th. So Kristen Kearns. That's the name I was looking for. Kristen Kearns. And there was there was. An accompanying editorial, specifically about what I talked, what I just mentioned, that is food industry funding of nutrition research. Um, Marion Nestle wrote that, and I've used that graphic now. Mm
0: -hmm. Go ahead. But you know, so when I first heard about this, so you know, I read it out of the New York Times. So there was, you know, the um, Mark Hegsted became the head of nutrition at the USDA. And, you know, he um, he's quoted twice or mentioned twice in the China study. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's mentioned in whole the book that I, I worked on with with Colin Campbell. And like, he, you know, it felt like like I had this urge to suppress this, like, you know, no sugar. Sh- like, it, it, like it was set up like either sugar or saturated fat had to be the enemy and it's kind of, It was. It's very refreshing to hear you say. You know, sugar is also bad because it was like. You know, well, it's either Esselstyn or Lustig. It's it's either you know Taubes or Campbell. Like, like, we have to choose sides, and we we're no longer allowed to uh, to just look at to look at evidence, even evidence that maybe contradicts our what our team thinks. You know. You know what I'm saying. In the clinic, Sarah Westridge. All
1: right. So, yes, indeed. Well, um, well, I'm glad that you've at least, uh, you know, uh, that you're bringing attention to this. Uh, it's, it's really an important issue, and I, I think it's something that we're all going to have to deal with. And one of these days, we are going to uh, have a good dissociation between nutrition research and nutrition um, or, and the uh, relevant industries, yeah, but it's not going to be easy to get there. So that was just my administrative assistant letting me know that I'm supposed to be in another place at 3 p.m., and then I'm like Okay.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, we, we better let you get there.
1: So I'm sorry. It's been a uh, great time talking to you, and uh, hopefully people will uh, uh, be able to keep looking for more and more research, hopefully more in cardiology publications, and hopefully f- uh, free of the shackles of, of industry.
0: Right on. Well, thank you for your work. Thank you for your time. Get get to your next appointment. We'll we'll connect via email for a for a closing. But uh, I really appreciate all you're doing, and uh, you're an, an inspiration on so many levels. So thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. All righty, Take care now.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. More than anything else, those reviews help us reach more listeners and spread the message. And for more information about the Big Change Program led by me and Josh Lajani, visit BigChangeProgram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at PlantYourself.com slash 218. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 217 archived episodes over at PlantYourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not my weeklyish Big Change Bulldog newsletter, you can sign up and also this week get the Stop Self-Sabotage Report plantyourself.com slash sabotage. Okay, here we go. Thanks to Plant Yourself podcast patrons, Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marot, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barron's, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jenna Filonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth, Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Dirkus, Rangler, Circus Kelly, Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gila, Lassert, David Donahoe, Blair Cyber, Doreen, Avodzo. <gasps> okay, Doron. <clears throat> you beat me. Doron Avizov rhymes with keep the cheese off. Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderberg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warabeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman rhymes with cinnamon, Nick Harper, David Donahue, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner. Oh, another breath with only four to go, but I'll do these carefully. They're all new. Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, and the inscrutable Harry R., for all of your generous support of the podcast. And thanks also to musician extraordinaire Will Hour for allowing me to use his beautiful song Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. If you haven't yet, check out Will's music at his website, willridenour.com. That's R-I-D-E-N-O-U-R, with a will in the front, dot com. If you'd like to support the show and help get the message out there, you can share this and other episodes on social media. You can email it to your friends. You can write that iTunes review, and you can become a patron of the show with a one-time gift. Or really, I'm looking for ongoing contributions, even if it's just a dollar a month um, at Patreon. And you can do it at patreon.com plantyourself or plantyourself.com and just look for the Patreon link in the right sidebar. In garden news, I'm trying to get as many calories as possible from the garden over the next few weeks. We've got cucumbers, heirloom tomatoes, basil, green beans, and whatever squash we can rescue from the stem borers. Although it does seem that our main crop these days is Japanese beetles and stem borers and various caterpillars. We are looking for non-toxic ways of keeping enough of our harvest to make it worth our time and effort, but... uh, We're definitely uh, elbowing other critters in an attempt to to gather some of our own bounty. In running news, boy, am I sluggish and slow these days. And some of my Strava runs, if you follow me on Strava, they're kind of a bit embarrassing when you look not so much at the distance but at the pace. I'm not sure if it's the heat or the humidity or whether I'm overtrained or undertrained or whatever, but I'm just playing at the edge, listening to my body, and generally erring on the side of too much rather than too little, and we'll see if that's a, uh, a smart error or not. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.